Good evening and welcome back to our pastor's class here at Hickory Grove. If tonight's your first night joining us, it's a good night to get back in to our pastor's class because we're beginning a study of a new book. We're going to be looking at Paul's epistle to the church at Philippi, known as the book of Philippians in the New Testament. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to turn with me there to Philippians 1. We'll spend the next few weeks, and in fact, this is going to take us through a good chunk of the summer as we study this famed epistle. Now, as you're turning there, a couple things you should know about our pastor's class study. As we've done this online, we have two resources, one free and one for purchase, that you can have to help assist you in this study. Uh, On the one hand, we do publish a free PDF handout that has the outline of each lesson. So you should probably find it attached to this video. You can also go to our church website and it's going to be attached to the lesson there as well. It's just a PDF that's going to have on one sheet of paper everything you're going to see show up in lower thirds on this lesson tonight. In addition to that, many of our lessons are going to be pretty rooted in an excellent resource called the Christ-Centered Exposition Series on various books of the Bible. And of course, I would encourage you to purchase the volume on the book of Philippians. It's a real small, thin, accessible commentary. If you've never bought a commentary before, these are some of the better ones to first get. They're they're built a little bit more devotionally. They're going to help you unpack the book, but in a way that's not terribly technical. And this particular volume is published, is authored rather, by Tony Marita. So I invite you to grab it. You can find it on Amazon or even in our church, church bookstore. And we'd love to have you follow along in this study of Philippians. Now, tonight we're going to be in Philippians 1. We're just going to look at the greeting, the first two verses in the book. And just from the outset, you're going to notice, you probably already know this if you know the Bible well, that Philippians, it's a book of joy. You're going to see joy permeate this whole book. And today we're going to look just at the first couple verses. And you might think, man, is that all we're going to do today? There's not, doesn't seem to be a whole lot in verses 1 and 2. But God's word is has unlimitable depths of riches. And I just want you to see, we're going to dig a little. I want you to see how much can be found in just these simple words of greeting. Let's read these words beginning in Philippians 1 verse 1. Hear now Paul's letter to the church at Philippi. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you join me as we pray? Father in heaven, I ask now that you would come and that you would minister your word to your people and that you would use me in spite of me, I pray, as a means to that end. I ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. In my cell phone, here in my pocket, reads a message. I want to recite this message to you, and I want you to imagine the type of person who would send it to me. This text message said, Kyler, God is good. He's good. He's filled me with joy. He's filled me with peace. Now, what kind of person can you imagine would send that text message to me? I could imagine, you know, somebody that just got a promotion, somebody who's on a terrific vacation, somebody who just bought a new house and is living it up, somebody out joyriding in their new car, 
somebody that life seems to be going good. I mean, it, it makes sense to say, I am filled with joy and peace, and man, God is good. But that text message came from a dying man, a 36-year-old friend of mine from college, otherwise healthy, has a wife and five children under the age of 10, a man who suddenly got a cancer diagnosis, very quickly thereafter learned it was terminal, and a man who just died almost a month ago today. Just a few weeks prior to his death, I received this text message from him, Kyler, God is good. He's good. I'm filled with joy and I'm filled with peace. How could he say that? How could he say that? If that strikes you as unnerving, if it strikes you as stunning, if that strikes you as, man, I could never see myself talking that way given those circumstances, all of the book of Philippians should hit you the same. For this book, this epistle of joy, this letter filled with references to joy, in fact, it's just a few chapters and Paul talks about joy 16 times in this book and just the whole feel and the theme is one of rejoicing. Yet if you know what's actually behind this letter, it should just make your mouth fall open, your jaw drop. Because Paul, writing this letter, is in some of the worst conditions. Paul has experienced utter suffering. And yet in the midst of this suffering, he writes one of the most famed letters of joy this world has ever seen. Let's give a little context to the book of Philippians before we unpack verses 1 and 2. I think they're going to help us appreciate and sense in a real visceral way, sense the utter secret to Paul's joy that we're going to unpack over the next few weeks in Philippians. Now, just remember, Philippians was written by Paul to a church at a city called Philippi. Now, let's talk about Paul's journey to Philippi. Paul was on his second missionary journey, and he was in what we would now know as modern-day Turkey, ministering to all these cities. And to make a longer story short, the Lord very clearly called him in this famed Macedonian vision recorded in the book of Acts. He calls Paul to the region called Macedonia. Now, we don't really talk about Macedonia anymore because it's basically northeastern Greece today. Paul goes over to this region of northeastern Greece, and there he arrives at the city called Philippi. That word, or that city Philippi, was founded and named after Alexander the Great's father, the the emperor, the king, Philip. And there he encounters a major bustling city. This was a city filled with commerce. It was on this major road of trade called the Via Ignatia. This was an important city. And as Paul enters the city, it was devoid of believers. Nobody was there. There wasn't a synagogue. There wasn't this fellowship of believers there. And so he found the few believers he could. He found some women at a prayer meeting down by the river. And in Acts 16, it records Paul sharing the gospel of Jesus there. A young lady named Lydia comes to faith, as does her household. That's the beginning of Paul's ministry in Philippi. By the way, all of Acts 16 is basically the historical background to the book of Philippians. So I'd encourage you to even press pause right now if you'd like and go read Acts 16. It might serve you to understand the book of Philippians. 
In addition, Paul and Philippi, he leads a, a, a demon-possessed girl to be freed. He exercises this demon from her. It causes quite the stir. He ends up being imprisoned and beaten and put in stocks in this jail. And a very famous thing occurs in Acts 16. While Paul and Silas are in this prison, it says that God basically brings an earthquake to this prison around midnight as they are singing praises to God and they are freed from their stocks. They escape the prison. The jailer who was not a believer and whose job was to keep these prisoners secure, he is so distraught by losing these prisoners that he's about to take his life and Paul and Silas stop him and the jailer ends up coming to Christ and asks the Paul and Silas, what must I do to be saved? And they end up getting saved. And it's an amazing story what happens in Philippi, but they get run out of town. And so Paul and Silas, they leave Philippi, they're gone. And we do see a little anecdote in Acts 20 where on Paul's third missionary journey, he comes back to Philippi, but not much is said there. Here's all we know. Roughly 10 years later, we believe Paul's trip to Philippi was around A.D. 51. So about 10 years later, A.D. 61-62, Paul writes a letter to these believers that he had evangelized, this church he had founded, this first church in Europe, this church at Philippi. Paul writes a letter to them. Now I want you to think about what's happened to Paul in those 10 years since he first founded this church at Philippi. Paul had a whole lot happen to him. He escaped a riot in Thessalonica. He was mocked and he was ridiculed in Athens. He was hauled before rulers in Corinth. He faced the threat of murder in Ephesus. He was beaten and arrested in Jerusalem. He was shipwrecked in Malta. And he was lastly imprisoned in Rome. I I just summarized very quickly the rest of the book of Acts. And Paul, while imprisoned in Rome, where he would eventually die, and tradition says he was martyred, Where Paul would eventually die in Rome, while imprisoned, he writes some letters. A suffering, beaten man. He writes some letters to some churches he loved. These letters, while penned in prison, famously known as the prison letters, the prison epistles, he writes to the church at Colossae, we know as Colossians. He writes to the church at Ephesus, of course we know as Ephesians. He writes to Philemon, that's an individual, we've already discussed that book in previous pastor's classes. And then lastly, he writes a letter to the church at Philippi, Philippians. And in this letter, Paul basically, in a way that should just really encourage us, Paul shows these believers at Philippi the secret to his joy. He shows them this joy he has that really should strengthen and encourage our faith. And the secret to this joy we're going to find in this greeting. It's that word grace you find in the beginning of verse 2. In fact, let's just put it this way. I, I believe one of the themes of the book of Philippians could be said something like this. The path to joy is paved with grace. If you long for joy that Paul tasted and saw, if you want this joy, the path to this joy is paved by the grace of God. Indeed, grace permeates this book. And Paul, in this greeting, he gives us a one, two, three punch, and he shows us just how much grace God has had both on he, the believers at Philippi, 
and the grace he is giving to us. So if you're taking notes, I want you to mark these things down. Here are three ways that the path to joy is paved with grace. First off, number one, he gives us the grace to see ourselves rightly. I want you to mark that down. First off, we're going to see this grace God has given us to see ourselves rightly. Now, here's why we need that grace. Because none of us do. All of us are inclined to think of ourselves more highly than we ought. Uh, Leonard Ravenhill, a famed British evangelist of the 20th century, once said, there's three people living inside each of us. There's the man you think you are, the man others think you are, and then, of course, there's the man God knows you are. How do you see yourself the way God sees you? How do you see yourself rightly? It's by God's grace. And we see this just implied in verse 1 where Paul says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Now, I want you to just look closely at these words. Paul and Timothy. Paul, a previous murderer, a Jew among Jews, highly educated. In fact, Paul gives us a little testimony of himself in the third chapter of Philippians. I won't get ahead of myself. We'll get there eventually. Paul and Timothy, these these men who have been converted by the grace of God, who were once enslaved to sin, they are now freed. They are now new creations. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. This is Paul and Timothy. They who were once enslaved to sin, guess what? They are now freed from it. This is implied in verse 1. Paul and Timothy, no longer servants of sin. We are servants of Christ Jesus. And so the grace to see ourselves rightly is first the grace to see ourselves as freed from sin. Hear now that you have been freed if you are in Christ Jesus. The sins that are clinging so near and dear to you that are just close that you just can't seem to shake off. Remember that in Christ you have been freed. The bondage of sin has been broken. It is no longer your taskmaster. You are no longer its servant. You are now a servant of Christ Jesus, freed from sin and death. Moreover, you can see implied by that word, servants of Christ Jesus, something that's not immediately apparent in the ESV. For that word, servant, in the original language is doulos, which is kind of like the word slave. It means a a bond servant, somebody who is utterly dependent and subservient to another. In other words, Paul and Timothy are not just saying we serve Jesus, we are slaves of Christ Jesus. We have not only been freed from sin, we have been freed to serve Jesus. We are now his servants, his bond servants, indeed his very slaves. The point is simply this. In Jesus, you are now enabled by his grace to see yourself as freed from your old identity. Your sin is gone. You are no longer enslaved to it. And you have now been freed. This is going to sound counterintuitive. You are freed to be enslaved to a new master. I know it sounds crazy, but this is a great grace. You are now freed to serve Christ with every fiber of your being. You are freed to love him with all your mind, soul, and strength, your body. You are called to love him, to serve him. You are a slave of Christ. And this is the testimony of Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. They have been given the grace to see themselves finally for who they are in Christ. That's number one. Number two, mark this down. 
We also have been given the grace not just to see ourselves rightly. We've been given the grace to see others rightly. And in particular, it's other believers. And you'll notice in the latter half of verse 1 where he says, To all the saints in Christ Jesus. Now, that word saints can be a little confusing. If you have any sort of Roman Catholic background, of course, the word saint is like a super-level Christian. It's a super-Christian. There's actually sainthood given to certain individuals that have particularly great testimonies, great ministries. That is not what the Apostle Paul means. In fact, I would say that is is a false, unbiblical category. For when Paul uses the word saints, in the original language, it's hagios, He is meaning those set apart. In other words, when Paul uses the word saints, he is talking about Christians, believers, not a superset of Christians. These are believers to those who have been made right by God in Christ Jesus. So I just want you to see this. One of the graces God gives you to see others rightly is the grace to see others as new in Christ. Perhaps you've had an enemy who has come to Christ, and by his grace you can now see him, the wickedest past he may have had, you can now see him as new in Jesus. He is now a saint in the eyes of God because the righteousness of Christ has been given, credited to him. We often use the word theologically, imputed to him. It simply means this, one day we will stand before God's throne of grace, And as we do, we will have nothing in our hands. We will stand before God, plead the mercy of Christ, and by his grace, it will be simply the blood of Jesus, the righteousness of Christ on our behalf. This is the glory of God's grace. Moreover, you see just a hint of not just a new identity in Christ. You also see a hint of being renewed in Christ because notice he also addresses this letter to the overseers and the deacons. Those overseers, they were uh, the episkopos. That's a kind of a synonym for a pastor, an elder, a shepherd. And these were the leaders of the church. Moreover, the deacons, diakonos, which are the servants, those called to lead in service. Two things are implied here. Uh, on the one hand, there were some former wicked sinners, people who hated God, who have been converted. They're now saints, and God has set them apart as shepherds to renew his people, to lead and shepherd and guide his people. Moreover, it's implied that we all need overseers and deacons. We all need leadership. We need servants. That's why you need a local church. It's not enough just to tune in and watch a pastor's class or watch a service from afar. You need to be a part of a body to be renewed by the word and to be shepherded and guided by other leaders. It's just an implication, but one to draw out in the latter half of verse 1. So number two, I just want you to see that we have been given the grace not just to see ourselves rightly, but to see others rightly, to see others as new in Christ and renewed in Christ. But let's conclude our time this evening with one third and final truth. It's a glorious truth we find in verse 2. Number 3, we're going to be given by God's grace the grace to see not just ourselves and not just others rightly, but third and finally, God rightly. Number 3, the grace to see God rightly. And Paul sees God as the giver of all things in verse 3. For he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, Paul is invoking a blessing and saying, first off, grace to you. Because God is, number one, the source of all grace. 
may this grace come to you. Help you. May God help you see that this grace, this charis, this grace is the source of all blessing in your life. If it weren't for God's grace, you would have no leg to stand on. It is by grace alone you stand. And so receive this grace, grace to you. Fill yourself with the grace of God. Just drink deeply from it and praise him. This, by the way, is the fuel for worship. The reason Christians sing like we do is because we stand before a holy God and say, God, we are men and women of unclean lips. We do not deserve to stand before your throne, but your throne is a throne of grace. And we glory in this grace. We marvel at this grace. We receive this grace. And we extend this grace to other believers. Grace to you, God the source of all grace. Moreover, God is the source of all peace. For he says not only grace to you, but peace from God our Father. And he is invoking a blessing of peace to others, for peace ultimately comes from God himself. We who were once enemies of God, God through Jesus Christ has reconciled us back to God and he has brought us peace, a peace that is impossible on our own. He has made us at peace with God once again by the blood of Jesus, reconciling us on the cross. And so we are ministers of this peace by going and bringing this gospel of good peace to other men and women. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news, this good news of peace. Praise be to God for the peace wrought on the cross of Jesus Christ. God is the source of all grace. He's the source of all peace. But we would be remiss if we did not point out one third and final reality of seeing God rightly by his grace. Notice that word Lord, Jesus Christ, in verse 2. That word Lord, kurios, is a word that invokes the all-sufficient, all-comprehensive authority of God. He is our Lord, for he has all authority. He is the source of all authority. He rules and reigns over all things. And so as we read through this letter of joy, as we drink deeply from this well of joy that Paul had in the midst of unspeakable suffering, remember that all joy comes from this wellspring of grace found in the all-authoritative God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We praise him that he is ruling and reigning over all things. Everything that comes to pass in your life, every frowning providence, every source of suffering, every bitter thing you drink in this earth, you can rest assured that there is an all-ruling sovereign God, a Lord who is authoritatively in control of all things. And that, my friends, is a pillow you can lay your head on at night. It is a sweet assurance that joy is not some wishful thinking. It's not something ephemeral. It is something weighty, something you can grip. It is something you can taste and see because there is a God who rules all things, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I invite you to join us next week as we begin in verse 3 and we start seeing all of these evidences of joy, the joy of grace that the Apostle Paul depicts for us while in chains, writing to this church at Philippi. Would you join me as we pray? Father in heaven, I do pray that all these dear friends would taste and see the joy of your grace. I ask this for my own heart, and I ask this for these dear friends. In Jesus' name I ask this. Amen.